Hi, I'm Tom Flynn. I'm Lori Feathers. And welcome to Lost in Redonda. So this week, uh, we are discussing for our backlist focus, uh, one of my suggestions, Gob's Grief by Chris Adrian. Uh, This is Adrian's debut novel. Um, I don't remember precisely why it cropped up on my radar. I kind of suspect it was because of his book, The Children's Hospital, Um, but maybe not. Either way, uh, I ordered this book into um, 57th Street Books back in 2007, um, read it, and just absolutely devoured it, loved it, loved everything about it. Um, It was stunning. The writing is gorgeous. Um, His approach to historical fiction, which isn't, I mean, you can barely call it historical fiction in many respects, um, is incredible. Uh, And... Much like uh, John Crow's Devil, we're talking about a debut novel uh, again, which you know we haven't done too too many of these podcasts yet, but there seems to be a bit of an emerging theme of falling in love with debuts and wanting to make sure that folks continue to continue to pay attention to them. But um, yeah, what did you what did you think of it, Lori? I thought it's an extraordinary work, but I should I should ask a question. Just kick us off. I am admittedly confused about the proper pronunciation of the main character's name. Um, I want to say that it should be Job, but I don't know. Maybe I've not heard the author mention the title. It's The spelling is G-O-B. So what do you think that, what do you think, Tom? I mean, it's a good question, and um, you raised it before we started recording, and I've been kind of thinking it over since since you said that. I mean, I obviously, I, I obviously already said Gob, and that's just how I've always referred to it. But um, Gob is uh, a nickname for the character whose full name is um, uh, George Washington Woodhull. So if you're shortening George Washington to a G-O-B, it probably is more of a Job sound, giving the, giving the George the the ja in there. Um, I just thought may- maybe because of like Job from the Bible, which, you know, there seems to be some analogy there. You no, know, absolutely. It very, it very much makes a lot of sense. In fact, a, a character starts reading uh, the book of Job at one point um, in the novel. Um, it probably, you're probably right. It probably is Job. Having said that, um, after... 16 plus years of calling it gob uh you'll forgive me if i if i can if i continue to fall back into uh that pronunciation of it yes yes um for sure because i sometimes say gob too so um all right but i will try to start and continue with with job so um my reaction to the book uh a remarkable debut um i just read this for the first time for this podcast. Um, I had read Chris Adrian's novel, The Children's Hospital, um, previously, and was quite amazed by that book. Um, but I, 
And it could be because I read it a little while ago, um, several years ago, but the power of his writing just, um, just amazed me, just, just knocked me in the mouth again, this, this time around reading him. Um, some of the descriptions are just so powerful. Um, Job is a doctor, um, and his, also his, his, one of his best friends, Will, is a doctor. And I'm just going to read, if you don't mind, Tom, just really briefly this description of an autopsy. I will say as well, which we should mention, Chris Adrian is one of those Renaissance men that um, is a pediatric oncologist uh, with a successful medical career and obviously a fantastic writer. Um, I'm very jealous when people have like that kind of multi-talent um, in their bodies. But um, this is on page 168 of my copy, and it's describing an autopsy. Yeah. When the organs were all removed and there was nothing left in the late person but watery blood pooling in the gutters alongside the spine, Dr. Gooley would stare lovingly into the body and put his hands into the pink fluid, lifting it and holding it in his palms until it ran through his fingers. My boys, he would say, do you see how we are vessels? I just, I don't know. I underlined that. It just, it just blew me away. The, the, the description of the watery blood pooling in the gutters alongside the spine. I mean, who writes like that? That's wonderful. Um, and there were so many passages. I, I underlined a lot of this book, but I, you know, it's a compelling story for sure. And um, just the amount of historical reference and some of the things that were going on in the country at the time that he brings up and some of the fantastical elements as well, the, the way he was able to combine all that, totally impressive. But I think for me, the writing um, is even more impressive. Uh, I would agree with that. Um, we'll, we'll launch into a little bit more of the, the plot, as it were, in a moment. But one other quick, in my turn, to do a little bit of story time from the book. But on uh, it's from page 142. And um, Will, um, Job's friend, uh, this is while Will is fighting um, in the Civil War and assisting a French photographer um, who is... Well, who's attempting to capture the image of the the soul leaving the body as someone dies? Um, so he's tr attempting to very quickly uh, develop a plate, um, and so this is this is just the description of of Will doing that. Um, Will removed the plate from its holder. He held it held it over a pan and poured developer over the glass. The developer reeked like a cocktail of vinegar and blood, and he almost dropped the negative when a violent sneeze shook him. Leaning down and squinting in the dim yellow light of the lantern, he could see the image rising out of the glass as if up through water. I mean, again, that there is a three-dimensional nature to Adrian's writing where you're you're not just in the scene and feeling the wind and smelling and smelling the the cocktail of vinegar and blood is such an incredible succinct but generative description um but i mean you're even feeling the like there's an emotional resonance that like that he's pulling you into that's really really quite amazing and really probably quite necessary for um 
this this book. Um, so Job's grief uh, takes place. Uh, I mean, the timeline is real not super long, about a fifteen year period, but it begins during the Civil War. Job uh, is eleven um, in 1863 when he and his brother are plan to take off and join the Union Army. They just his brother. Now here's another pronunciation question. Uh, his brother's name is T O M O. Um, I've always just had Tamo in my head, but that might be my own like preference given my first name. But that sounds about right to you, yeah. Yeah, it does. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, T- Tamo is the the kind of insider to this. He he wants them to go join up. Um, and at the last minute on the night they're leaving, um, Job backs out and Tamo goes off and um, dies, uh, is shot through the eye. And um, Job never forgives himself. Um, and over the intervening years, he decides to basically put an end to death. And that is what this novel is. That That is, in many ways, the, the action of this novel is Job's efforts and his grand plan to end death. And in the process, Walt Whitman is pulled into it. Major historical figures um, are brought into it. I mean, someone whose name is continuing to haunt us to this day, Comstock makes a, an appearance whose act is being invoked in many of the attempts to to legislate against reproductive health in this country in this day and age, which is also a wild thing given some of the other thing, other events that come up in this novel, um, which I guess in some ways to say that a lot of this stuff is something that we've never moved past, never really truly reckoned with, but yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, uh, Job says at one point when he's talking to Will that, he, that he needs Will's help. Um, he needs Will's help to lick death. And it's truly an obsession with him. Um, Job has a very large home um, in the middle of Manhattan, um, which Manhattan, I think, was a lot smaller than, than it is now. Uh, but uh, And it's full of his efforts, his mechanical um, experiments to try to somehow, uh, devise a a machine that will be able to defeat death. And it's motivated by the loss of his brother when, when both boys were quite young and, uh, and Job says, um, or thinks over and over again in the book that, um, he's ashamed because he was too afraid to go with his brother to war. Um, and so he let his brother go alone and there's a real, um, there's kind of a synchronicity here about the people that Job enlists to, uh, to help him, um, on this mission to lick death. A lot of people whose brothers are deceased. And I was interested in, um, an interview that I read of of uh, Chris Adrian that he said that his own brother died in a car accident in 1993. So that was a little bit of, I think, the idea for kind of having these siblings that can't 
really get over the the grief and the mourning of a lost brother and, you know, and trying to do something about that. And so, yeah. And then, and the, as you said, the people he enlists are all marked in a similar way to Job. But what's interesting as well is that the people that come, that are pulled into Job's orbit. And that's really what happens. Like they all find him in very unusual and different ways. But once once they find him, he realizes Job almost immediately recognizes that they are there to help him in his great work, that they were that they were called to him. But on top of that, all of them are in contact in some way with their deceased loved ones. So I mentioned Walt Whitman is a character uh, in the novel and a soldier that Whitman was caring for. Um, and for those don't know, Walt Whitman spent a good bit of time in the Civil War working as a nurse at field hospitals, um, caring for the wounded. And a man that he becomes close with who dies, um, his voice recurs throughout that part, the first part of the novel in Whitman's head, encouraging him, prodding him. And when Job is discovered, uh, almost an elation saying here he is you know here here's the one at last um will can see the dead um he is i mean overwhelmed by the spirits that he sees around him including a um young boy with one angel wing holding a bugle which is clearly tamo tamo was a bugler um for the company that he ended up joining um and macy job's eventual wife is doing a version of automatic writing with her left hand, um, completely involuntary, but purportedly it's letters from her deceased brother um, guiding her and pushing her into Job's orbit. It's so, it's fascinating to the, all of this could be manifestations of a person's grief, just like in a psychological sense, right? Like this could just be how, how people are coping or not coping with these losses, but they end up in the orbit of someone who can't speak with the dead, can't see them, can't hear from them, can't communicate, but is building something that the dead seem convinced will bring them back. I mean, this is also part of the, the craftsmanship. I mean, setting it, setting aside the, the gorgeous writing, this is a very tightly written novel. Like it is, this construction is really quite impressive as well, I find. Yeah, it is. Um, because we kind of go through um, each of these main characters' um, relationship with uh, their their dead sibling and then kind of how they're trying to cope with the grief of it all. But we probably should should talk a little bit, Tom, about the atmosphere in the country while, you know, this is going on. Because in a lot of ways, um, I mean, Job's idea to build a machine to bring back the dead is all kinds of crazy. But there was a spirit... <laughs> no pun intended, um, at the time, a whole spiritualist movement that was very, that was very much seriously considering communicating with the dead, you know, seances, trying to, trying to make the, the dead appear to the living. It was kind of, there was a lot of, 
I feel, I feel like more acceptance of that kind of supernatural element at this time, um, maybe like between the civil war and after world war one, than there certainly is today. No, absolutely. I mean, the spiritualist movement, um, I believe had its, uh, was beginning a bit in the lead up to a, um, the Civil War, and there were elements of that always in uh, Christianity, and elements uh, in various Christian denominations. And, and one of the other things that this novel does do is it pulls at the various beliefs that the pe- peoples have brought with them into the country. Job and uh, Tamo's family on their mother's side, the the Claflin side, were a combination of um, scam artists claiming to speak to the dead for a bit, but their mother apparently could speak with the dead, as could their aunt. So these things were already circulating, and in the wake of the Civil War and the the calamity that that just inflicted upon on society with so many dead and so many wounded. Um, and in many ways, the wounded counted, some of the wounded counted among the dead. They were so damaged that, yeah, it absolutely took off. Uh, and it did carry forward throughout the rest of the 19th century. A lot of people are probably most familiar with it from seances and the like, and Arthur Conan Doyle's association with it um, in the late 19th, early 20th century. The uh, Julian, I think it's Julian Barnes's novel, Arthur and George, um, about Arthur Conan Doyle and um, a railway man, um, George, whose last, this is an actual historical event where Arthur Conan Doyle got involved in um, freeing a railway man who had been uh, accused of um, mutilating sheep uh, in the English countryside. Uh, and he was mostly uh, accused and then convicted of this because uh, he was half Indian. Um, Julian Barnes wrote a novel that that was quite interesting, but the spiritualism component really gets discussed and he dives into it pretty heavily. But it isn't just spiritualism that um, Adrian is uh, summoning. <laughs> Apologies for the, the bad pun. Um, I mean, he's also digging into the the rapid technological changes that are taking root in the U.S. after the war, which is, I mean, frankly, often the case. You know, war breeds innovation, which then after the war settled, what was most useful or was most useful from that that you can be applied in peacetime takes off. Takes off, and in the wake of death, people often want to create something new. So you have these advances in medicine, you have these advances in technology, but they're taking place against these massive social movements and social changes. Um, another historical figure that Adrian pulls in here is Victoria Woodhull um, in the novel uh, Job and Tamo's Mother in our world in real life, a, a uh, suffragette, a advocate for free love, uh, later in her life, a eugenicist, unfortunately, but a a breathing per, real breathing person um, who is you know one of the driving forces behind what became the the Comstock Act etc. So there's so much up for grabs in this moment, and so much that is changing so radically that in a certain sense, why wouldn't someone at this moment where you're bridging the gap between some versions of superstition and a agrarian um society that's moving into a (laughs) into a world that's more industrialized more tech driven 
but deeply unrooted spiritually at the same time, why wouldn't someone try and build a machine that would just completely upend the the natural order of things? Yeah. And I think it's interesting too, that um, not only is the is the social environment um, welcoming or or open to this kind of um, talking and obsessing about the dead, but um, Job has a really eccentric family as well. Um, that the, the Woodalls and and the the Claffins that kind of they don't really think it's so weird. Um, what what job does or what job thinks and um if you'll indulge me to let <laughs> to let uh me read just a, a short passage on page 185 at the bottom which i thought was hilarious so um it's another sign said mrs woodall that you've returned to your family she's speaking of job isn't it so good to be together again all of us now we'll all be together forever Come, everybody, come and embrace our sweet lost sheep. Miss Claffin hurried down to the other end of the table and threw her arms around Job. I could squeeze you till you pop, she declared. Blood, it's Colonel Blood, who is um, Mrs. Woodall's, um, I guess, second husband. Uh, she never divorced, divorced the first, but put his hero's, Blood put his hero's arms around him, and Anna slipped her withered stick limbs around his belly. Utica knelt down and clutched his leg, overcome suddenly with emotion and drunkenness. She wept against his pants. Big Malden put his long arms around them all and squeezed. Buck sauntered down and made as if to walk by the affectionate heap. He stopped and considered it for a moment. Then Will thought he would join the embrace, but instead Buck turned and backed his ass into the great heap of bodies. Job had disappeared entirely, and Will did not know if he should join them or quietly slip away. They chattered and squeezed and wreathed and cried and began to quarrel among themselves. It's just like a very weird scene that, um, but that, yeah, it's, um, it's, I guess eccentric is the best word that I can think of, of this kind of family that, that Job has grown up in and kind of a, a permissively, um, I would say imaginative group that, you know, don't kind of are seen by a lot of people as, as rather weird, um, especially Mrs. Woodall's sister and kind of weird or strange um, things really don't appear to them as being, you know, and a lot of families, I think Job would have been packed off to a mental institution, but by his family, but here it's just kind of seen as, Oh yeah, we we all believe that, you know, the spirits live among us. And so, you know, what Job is doing makes sense. Well, and, and I mean, and to a degree, I mean, a lot of them didn't know precisely what Job was doing, and they even comment at one point that science is uh Job's Job's religion, and they referred to him as being electrified, which is I mean, like he's the weird one within the family for being relatively modern in that sense. Um that he can't see the spirits uh, they find actually not strange, but you know, a little bit disappointing, I suppose. Yeah. It's, it's, it's in some ways the way they're described. I mean, Joe mentions earlier, Tomo, I think mentions early on um, in the, op- the opening portion of the, of the novel um, is describing Tomo's trip to join the army and his time in the army leading to his death. He mentions that they would read Shakespeare, um, he, Job, and their mother. And this is on a farm in Ohio, 
um, in the 1860s, 1850s and 1860s. I mean, it's just, there's just, there's so many different things clashing all at the same time that of course is going to produce, it's going to produce a really interesting, interesting tumult of a family. Yeah. When you were reading that aloud just now, Lori, it, it very much sounded almost like, I don't know, a, a comedic de- depiction of like bears all piling up on top of each other in, in a den, you know? <laughs> yes. Maybe we should we should um, kind of address the purpose of inserting the character of Walt Whitman into this story. Because as we were preparing for the, this episode, I think that you raised a good point. Uh, I, I was questioning whether the machine is evil. There's a, there's an angel with two wings, unlike Tomo with just one that, um, that will also sees. Um, and she kind of chides will, uh, a few times. She doesn't speak very much, but she says, you know, this is an abomination. Why are you why are you participating in an abomination? So I raised the question, is the machine like pure evil? Should we see it as evil? And I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I got the sense that perhaps you thought it was more emblematic of science and technology whereas Whitman, I think, um just based on his poetry and his reverence for the natural world could be seen as representing nature versus science. So the machine that um, Joe begins to construct takes a, a, a few different forms over the years. Um, starts out in, in one specific shape that's very primitive, and all it can do is communicate with the other side and leads to a pretty important turn in um, Job's life story. But we'll cover that when we cover his... Uh, master, educator, however you want to refer to him. We'll, we'll get to that character shortly. And then it takes another form that produces uh, functionally a homunculus. And then it takes a final form, the form in which um, Walt Whitman is to be the centerpiece. Whitman is the... So the structure of the novel, the novel is basically broken into three parts, um, each part focusing on a different important person um, to Job's undertaking, um, Walt, um, Will Fye, and uh, Macy Trufant. We meet Walt first and his his relationship with, with Hank, the soldier who eventually, after Hank's death, uh, takes up residence in Walt's head. And it's very much suggested that Walt falls in love with Job. And Job is interested in Walt as he sees Walt as a ne- necessary part of his of his grand plan. So I think when you pose the question whether or not the machine is evil, the machine that he constructs is evil, I don't think it's evil. I think though that as the angel continues to say, it it's an abomination. It's it's it is an attempt to undo the natural order. Um and the angel isn't appearing and saying, you know, don't don't learn how to do medicine better or don't learn how to better use lead to injure and mangle your bodies. Um, that's, that's just human intellect advancing in, in different ways um, to heal and to harm. Um, what Job is attempting is to completely 
unmake creation as far as the angel sees it and as the angel understands it. And, and in that regard, I mean, certainly, I mean, I think even calling it an abomination isn't even saying that it's evil per se. It's just something that shouldn't exist. It's something that uh, it, it, it is an affront to creation. But I don't think there's necessarily, I mean, probably the angel would put maybe something of a, a morality judgment on it. I think it's just, you know, it's it's a it's a daemon to to use like sort of the, the Greek, you know, the ancient Greek sense of it. Um, it's something that's acting upon the world um, that is from outside the world. And that shouldn't happen from humans, I think. And Whitman's role is, as you said, as someone who's able to take in the world and its surroundings and, and his openness of, of mind, but ability to then re-express it. He's something, I mean, I think, I, th I mean, it's never made ex entirely clear. Like the, the machine in some ways doesn't make any sense. It is a complete mishmash of technologies and, and devices. But I think Walt is supposed to be that bridge. I think Walt is supposed to be uh, creation and recreate, bringing back to life all those who have died and remaking um, the world as it is currently constructed. Yeah, there's a, um, and I know we'll, we'll have to speak about it now because I'm kind of bringing it up as well. Um, there's this otherworldly creature that, um, that at least Job sees. I don't know whether anyone else sees him, but is kind of, he calls him at times his master and he's like a motivation for Job and like, persisting year after year. I mean, this goes on a long time that Job's trying to like create this, this machine and the, um, the, the master, which is, is called the, the, Eurofeist, He says that the, that the machine is lacking the crucial element of desire. And, you know, maybe that in, as well as being like a symbol of nature or speaking for nature, maybe Whitman is supposed to, because I mean, his, his poetry is very sensual. Maybe he is, maybe he's to be the desire, but it's also kind of very odd in a way to think about like a, an inanimate machine supposing to have like, or needing to have the human emotion of desire in order for it to function. Well, and it's also, I mean, it's the merging of man and machine in a way as well that we're talking about here, um, which could in itself be an aspect of the abomination that the, the angel is referring to, um, that it's going too far to put the human inside the machine. Man, we're getting real, I mean, without even trying, we're getting really good at, at picking novels that are talking about a lot of things that are percolating across uh, uh, across the uh, the internet and the world at large these days. But maybe it's just because we're picking good novels that are always addressing such concerns. I don't know. Um, I want to think we have good taste, Tom. I mean, I, th I, th I think good taste. I think we'll, 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 we'll ride with that one. Do you want to explain the Eurofeist? Um, sure. But before we get to that, since you brought up the angel, I just want to quickly flag what, ever since I read this novel, this one exchange has stuck with me. Um, and I think it's just one of the more remarkable 
images in the book. It's on page 202. You actually flagged it in um, an email that um, you sent, Lori, when we were chatting about this session. And this is uh, when the angel is talking to Will and trying to basically convince him not to work with uh, Job. And the angel says, um, you'll fail, was what the angel said during her rare and brief visits. And she repeated her question, why do you participate in abomination? He had gathered eventually that uh, by abomination, she did not mean his dalliances on Green Street. She meant the machine. Do you think God is against our work? He'd asked Job after one of her visits. He is indifferent, was the reply. When Will told about the angel, he thought Job might laugh at him and say that those spirits walked all around us on earth. There was never any, any such thing as an angel. But Job had only nodded and said, as if it were the most ordinary and sensible statements, oh yes, the angels, they're very much against us. That's, God, because I would like to know what it feels like just to write a paragraph like that sometime, you know, like that is just a hell of a thing, but. Yes, agreed, agreed. And I think that that paragraph is part of what laid the the thought in my mind that the machine is evil. Um, because if the angels are against it, then how can it be anything but the opposite of good? I don't know. Well, I mean, later on, Job does make the art, does also say that angels lie all the time as well. So, I mean, it's really a question of what you think the, the role of angels in, in all of this is, especially if God is indifferent. Um, there's a little bit of a uh, deist sense of uh, the universe as a, as a clockwork machine that God sent moving forward and then walked away from um, going on in here, uh, which would make sense if you're trying to build a machine that will alter it. You would kind of need the universe to function as a machine in the first place. Um, oh, so the, uh, the earth iced. Um, so after uh, Tamo dies, uh, and Job is inconsolable, he eventually decides that he must, you know, defeat death. And um, he seeks out the Urfeist. And the Urfeist is this creature that everyone knows about, all the kids know about, they're all terrified of, that lives near their uh, town, um, off in the woods. Um, he's basically a boogeyman type, uh, but is apparently real. Uh, and Job seeks him out finds him at the last minute tries to run away at which time that Urfice hunts him down rapes him and then bites off um most of uh i believe on his left hand his it's his little finger right not his ring finger um which we later <laughs> we are later informed that uh job's uh grandmother is also missing the same amount of the same digit um, and the Urfice even says to Job, did your grandmammy send, send you to find me? And this was an exchange, the exchange in exchange for um, going into the Urfice service. Um, the Urfice will help him learn how to defeat death. The Urfice takes him away. Uh, they go off to New York City. <laughs> um, very interesting exchange where they go from um, buggy to wagon uh, to ferry to train. So this almost movement from the past into the future as they approach New York City and take up residence in the Urfice mansion on Fifth Avenue. 
And in New York, he is, uh, I think, Dr. Oberts, something like that, um, has a German accent um, and uh, sees to the wealthy and um, (laughs) the wealthy and respected and the wealthy and disrespected um, among uh, New York society. And the man, whatever the creature is, uh, starts teaching Joe, puts all sorts of, you know, information in front of him, the ancient Greeks, the Magi uh, of um, medieval um, Europe, um, just starts throwing more and more information at him, teaching him different languages, um, exposing him to um, modern scientific thought as well as alchemical thought, um, and even says that the Urphite spirits had told him that one day a boy would come to him that would um, help him, the Urphist, achieve his achieve a great work, um, and that he thinks that's what Job is. But the Urphist is also also occasionally retires to a, a chamber in this mansion where he um, puts back on the animal skins that Job met him in, and looks once again like this boogeyman. He periodically uh, takes children from orphanages and feeds them up and then takes them into that same room where they are disappear. And a few days later, the earth ice reemerges energized. I mean, so he, he's, he's the witch from Hansel and Gretel. He's Rumpelstiltskin. He's all sorts of monsters at once. Um, I think we both did the same Google search and found that the earth ice is actually the only place I saw it come up was as a, the name of a sea serpent in an um, Irish legend, um, which is also fascinating because here he is with a German accent, but he has the name of a, an Irish demon, as it were, um, this mashing of cultures and beliefs and superstitions all, all at the same time happening um, in this country. Um, yeah. It's a weird character. It is a very weird character. And and in that interview with Chris Adrian, I mean, he he says that it's he took the, the creature out of Irish mythology. Even its name though, Urfeist, I if if I had to guess, I would have said, Oh, that's you know, that's something out of German fairy tales or something. You know, it sounds it sounds like a very German name as well. Not it doesn't particularly sound Irish to me for what that's worth, but no, I mean, I assumed it was German uh, when I, and but then also I looked up and I just broke it up a bit and Feist has uh, a meaning of like mongrel or small hound, small dog. So, I mean, this is the, the, the over mongrel, the over dog, I guess, um, which is, I mean, given how he's portrayed physically would, would make a certain amount of sense. He's portrayed as small and yet impossibly strong, um, dirty, yet elegant um moving within you know at at his dinners uh he has the who's who of um mid-19th century new york society uh at his table uh, but they're all engaging in um acts out of decorum after dinner is completed everyone including the women stay at the table and smoke cigars and drink brandy and engage in um talk that wouldn't wouldn't be considered uh, couth otherwise. So, I mean, he's representing a character that is welcomed, is welcomed, but also allows a certain kind of uh, breach of protocol, a, a, a way out of uh, society. And in his powers and his knowledge, I mean, he's not that dissimilar from the apostle from um, John Crow's Devil at all, uh, especially with what he has Job learn and what, what he teaches Job um, along the way. 
Um, what's also incredible about this is that Tamo dies in 1863 when he and Job are um, 11. And the final action, well, one of the final actions of this novel takes place in 1872. So Job's only 20 at this point. When he meets Will, he's barely 18. And yet that that doesn't make sense given how much Job learns and how much he covers in that time. I mean, he learns a lifetime's worth of information. That there's there's something out of time taking place there as well, which is I don't know, it's it's a very quiet magic trick I think Chris Adrian is doing there where the dates don't quite make sense. Like it doesn't really work that he would be able to accomplish all of this or learn, or even just learn all of this in the time in, in the time that he's given um, according to the, the, the chronology of the novel, but he does. And yeah, I think, I, I just think that, I just think that's sort of a, a neat nod to both how fast things are changing in, in society at the time. Like, I think it's reflective of, of that sort of argument, but I think it's also just sort of the, the, the forces at play uh, in Job's uh, grand project. Yeah, I guess I I kind of saw Job as as somewhat supernatural. I mean, the things that he does seem, you know, not not of this world in terms of the amount of information that that he not only consumes but is able to then apply. And you know, there's a scene where. Uh, when he finally shows Will um, his house and the makings of the machine and the house is just chaos and there's, there's uh, metal parts and, and different scraps all over the place. But then there's also um, just books, piles and piles of books just laying all over the place. And at one point, you know, when, when Job successfully, um, uh, recruits Will to help with the machine, he starts like loading books up into a wheelbarrow and he says like, here, you know, you need to know about this and this and this and this. And Will takes the books home and it's just like, it's, it's overwhelming because there's just, there's just so very much to, to try to, uh, to learn and, and absorb. And it's just not really physically possible or mentally possible to be able to do that. Well, it's also interesting too, because I mean, I, I would agree with all that, but what's also kind of fascinating is that Job doesn't, in a novel full of people who can see spirits and talk to them or have their hands directed by them, he has no connection to that other world other than wanting to tear down the walls between his and that world. He can't talk to his brother. He can't, he can't, he, the angels don't appear to him and warn him. He's as you said, accomplishing something supernatural with supernatural levels of understanding and, and, and knowledge. And yet he doesn't have any of the traditional markers or what we would consider the traditional markers of the supernatural, you know? And I think that's, that's kind of a, an interesting um, bit about, bit about him as well. Um, I'm very quickly, there was a specific line. Oh yeah. Um, page 245. What you were saying made, made me think about this. Um, this is from, there's, after we get more time spent with uh, Job's life with the, the Earthheist, 
there are periods where the Urfi sort of goes off on tangents um, or like a paragraph, sort of all sorts of random information, sometimes cogent, some, you know, or coherent, sometimes not. But in one of them, um, he starts talking, he, he's belittling Job at the same time describing him. And he goes, I think you must be made from your brother's leftover material. There must have been something extra, but not enough for a whole proper boy. God made you a half thing, a well-intentioned but poorly executed gesture. Perhaps it was your brother I was meant to teach, but you're a sweet in your own way. We will have to make do. But this idea as Job being just extra material and himself something of a, you know, frankly, like a homunculus, un- not unlike uh, Picky, uh, who appears um, part of the way through the novel. Yeah, Picky is this, um, this waif, this child that um, that Job kind of picks up. He says that he he found him, I think, in Central Park. You know, left alone um, and abandoned. But you do get the sense that there's something that's like also not quite a hundred percent human about picky as well, that he's, that he's something other. But I, I also wanted to raise the issue of the character whose point of view we see most in part three, Macy, who becomes um, Job's wife. And she kind of has an ambivalence about the machine up until the, the very end. And I don't think I'm, I'm, I want to tell people how how the book ends, but there's there's a point where they're kind of staging, ready to like, you know, turn the machine on with Walt Whitman um, in the in the little I don't know compartment of it, and you know, ready to bring back the dead. And um, Macy thinks. About the machine, she thought that mechanical competence would indicate supernatural competence, and her doubt would shrivel. But the thing was roaring away gloriously, and still she thought it was folly, just an enormous monument to Job's grief that was beautiful and complex, but no more likely to raise the dead than an ordinary lever. I just thought that was, uh, especially because it it, kind of, it invokes the... Um, the title of the book for sure, but, um, it kind of, it kind of gets you inside her, her head a little bit. Um, because so much of the book is taken up by these, you know, by Whitman and Will and Job, but, um, but Adrian also paints a pretty, um, nuanced picture of Macy as well. Yes, absolutely. Um, and I, I, on the point of grief, um, earlier in uh, page 204, uh, in an argument between Will and Job, Will says, it won't bring them back to merely complain. But it will, Job said. Don't you understand? What's grief if not a profound complaint? It's what the engine will do. It will complain. It will grieve with mechanical efficiency and mechanical strength. Again, this is though back to just how tightly written and constructed this novel is, these sorts of occurrences. I feel that... You're getting so many different angles on the effects. Uh, I mean, both expressions of grief and the effects the war had on um, the people affected by it. Right? I mean, Whitman through his nursing, through his uh, family ties, but, but we get up close with 
um, his relationship with Hank, the soldier who eventually dies under his care. Um, with Will, it's through Will's, Will loses his brother and then joins up. And then we see Will as he moves through battle, moves through the war, survives it, and comes out the other side a completely different person. Um, he began, he, Will initially was hated by the company he joined because he wouldn't let anyone drink or use foul language or any of those things. And by the end of the war, he, he's drinking quite a bit. And in his days uh, in medical school, takes quite a liking to uh, ether. Um, so he changes quite a bit. And then- And prostitutes too. Uh, quite a bit with the prostitutes, yes. Um, and then, um, but then, and then Macy, Ma- Macy has a whole host of things going on um, there. In addition to the uh, death of her brother during the war, um, her mother becomes. I mean, when we, when we were first, the beginning of Macy's section. In the first paragraph and a half, Macy's mother becomes obsessed with the idea of only eating beans to the point that she eventually dies of malnutrition. Um, her father becomes increasingly unstable, um, which is part of what um, inspires her brother to join up, um, to run off, is to be away from everything that's going on. But then we follow Macy as she's exchanging letters with her brother, and her brother turns out is a uh, gifted artist is drawing um pictures of uh, one of his friends in the company um who happens to be a vanderbilt of course because what what novel about the 19th century that intersects with new york wouldn't have some vanderbilts in it and eventually her brother dies as well um and she gets the news of that from his friend um uh george washington vanderbilt another recurrence of a name and and after she hears of her brother's death, she eventually leaves her father um, and takes off and eventually uh, throws herself into causes, um, specifically women's suffrage. And she becomes quite taken with um, the Woodhulls and what they stand for, um, writing for their magazine, doing research for them, um, and eventually goes to New York to join them, which is what begins to draw her into into Job's orbit. Um, prior to this is when, after her brother's death is when the automatic writing with her left hand begins, where she's writing letters um, supposedly from her brother, telling her what heaven is like, telling her that there's a grand plan. In some ways, I would almost say that her writing sounds, I don't know, there's something about the way some of what's written, it sounds the most like uh, her grief made manifest in, in, in a way even stronger than Will's seeing spirits or um, Walt's hearing um, Hank in his head. Um, it's just so much more directly addressing Macy's life and world um, and what her role is supposed to be. I don't know. I thought that even the first reading, that stuck out to me a little bit. And I wasn't quite sure if it was because it was written. It was in the, a written format. If it was so much more explicitly um, visible, I mean, Will seeing spirits, he attempted to drown out, and he just kept hidden from other people. Um, Walt could try to ignore the voice in his head; he didn't need to say anything. But Macy's actually writing something down that for others to see. And if someone were to read one of the letters from her brother, it'd be a very strange. Like, well, what is this that you're writing? Like. This isn't like any of your political tracks. This sounds like someone writing to you from the beyond. 
and that and that ability of hers eventually is what allows Job to finish his machine. Yeah, I think you can't um, over um, emphasize the the role that you know the 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 mourning for the brothers plays in this book. And in fact, uh, again, I'm referring back to the to the interview that I read, and we'll make sure we include that in the in the show notes, Tom. But um, Chris Adrian, you know, said that he was he knew the story that he wanted to write a story about someone grieving or people grieving the loss of their brother and, and that inspiring them to try to bring him back to life. Um, and he didn't quite know what setting he was going to use for this book, but then he said it became so clear to him in thinking about it that, um, well, of course, the Civil War, because what American experience has so caused brothers to lose brothers, both literal brothers, but then also figurative brothers, like in the case of uh, Walt Whitman and Harry. Right. I mean, and it's the word. Or Hank, sorry. Right. And it's the war that's described as brother against brother, you know, between the two sides. And, you know, Job is not planning on only bringing back the union dead. I mean, he's planning on bringing back everyone. He's planning on bringing back everyone who has ever died. Um, so there, there is no, there's no distinction of um, who counts as family um, in, in this great plan that he has. I'm just chewing over a little bit, the, the different manifestations, uh, how, how the different manifestations of grief are then pulled into this, this greater plan by, by Job. Um, how they all feed into the the creation of uh, the final form uh, of his great machine. It, it's it's I mean well I mean the other part of the machine becomes uh, neg- uh, photographic negative plates that um, Will provides um, eventually in the form of the wings of an angel, which is of course its its own um, nod to what what they're possibly doing here. In some ways, you have like the mind, the hand, and the eye all combining uh, across the three characters to to provide to provide Job with the means to to accomplish his task. Um, it's a brilliant book. It's it's brilliant, and it's it sticks with you. I mean, it's stuck with me all these years. Um, it is one that I constantly. I mean, I think about a lot. Um, its ending is, um, really <laughs> searing. Like it really, it really, it, it's, it's incredible, um, and heartbreaking in, in a, in a very particular way. Um, I think we'll save that for you, uh, dear listener <laughs> to experience your, you're not, if you want to find out, you got to read it. We're not letting you off, um, from, from, from that. Right. Right. What, what other books does this call to mind for your time. Um, so when I was trying to like pull that together a little bit, uh, three books immediately jumped to mind for me, but not one of them is actually uh, fiction. Um, the first one is uh, Names on the Land, um, uh, which is a NYRB reprint, um, which is really just about like how different areas in the country um, got their name. But I think it's just such a fascinating sort of look at it jibes well with 
this mishmash of cultures and um, overlaying of um, ideas and peoples and groups' existences um, across the country. Um, so I think it's kind of interesting and, and works with it that way. Uh, the Stammering Century, which is also available as an NYRB reprint, um, which is something of a social history of religious movements across the 19th century in America, um, covering the various Great Awakenings, but the social dynamics that birthed them, uh, the consequences, and then how they led to the to the next one um which very much ties into the the spiritualism the uh questioning of social mores that that runs throughout this book especially from um job's family's perspective um and that's just a really fascinating book and one i think that i don't know i I feel like if you're trying to understand why the u.s and why u.s politics function the way they do that's a pretty essential read to to my mind but then also on the spiritualism front, um, the Immortalization Commission by the philosopher John Gray. It It's a weird one. Um, <laughs> it's basically split in half. And the first half covers the spiritualist movement and pays special attention to Conan Doyle and his circle. Um, the second half is about the Soviet attempts to defeat death. And it's really Gray kind of exploring these different tacks all within about 50 to 60 years of each other to fundamentally alter um, our understanding of life uh, and human life, which I don't know, there's, uh, there's some mentioning when we're talking about, about this book, I think. Uh, and plus I think Gray's just, uh, he's, he's a really good stylist his prose works really 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 well and is really interesting and engaging how about how about you Lori? well i wish i had um some of the nonfiction background in this area that you have um because i'm sure that your recommendations are pretty pretty specific in terms of themes and content i guess i guess for me just in terms of the feel of the book um, the one that jumped to mind right away was George Saunders' Lincoln in the Bardo. Uh, I love that book. Um, I think most of our listeners is, have probably either read that book or know of it, but another brilliant writer and just, you know, just talking about um, the grief that Abraham Lincoln went through when he lost um, his son and it was in, you know, the context of this, this spiritualism, this kind of spiritualist movement in, in that people thought that it was possible to communicate with the dead. And in Lincoln and the Bardo, it really is a lot of dead people communicating with each other and then communicating with the living. And so, so that, that's the one that, that came, I think, most relevantly to mind for me. That also makes me think of um, uh, Lincoln at Gettysburg. Um, Gary Wills's, uh, I think it won the Pulitzer, uh, examination of the Gettysburg Address. Um, what's interesting about that in this context is that the Gettysburg Address was a complete aberration for its time. Um, this very succinct uh, speech made absolutely no sense within the uh, standards uh, of the age. Um, 
And he really dives into that, dives into the social history of how one mourns and how it was totally appropriate for um, a father to spend hours a day grieving at the headstone of their child. Obviously, this is usually reserved for a certain social class, but that, yeah, it really kind of digs into that, which I think, again, gives some other context to some of what Adrian's playing with here. I'd be really curious to know what his research looked like for for this novel. You know, um, I'd also be curious to know how much um, how much sci-fi and steampunk he had read, because the machine that Job constructs is one hundred percent. I mean, it's not run by steam. Actually, some uh, some parts of it are run by steam, but like it it looks like what you would imagine a steampunk contraption to look like, and it and it's it's taking place in this era of magic and technology and faith in traditional religions and the complete rejection of uh the the social constraints those religions and enforce uh, i mean it's yeah it's he's doing he's doing doing a lot a lot a lot a lot in this book i mentioned at the at the top that of course he's he's a a physician so he's he's got um a doctor's degree, but he also has a degree from the Iowa Writers Workshop. And then um, I'm I'm embarrassed to say that I forgot that uh, at the time. But your your discussion just now reminded me that he also has a degree from Harvard Divinity School. So I mean, the guy the guy has a lot of knowledge, but there's no doubt that this had to have have um, you know. Uh, required quite a bit of of research, particularly about the personages of the time, you know. Um, and he he makes no kind of bones about the fact that his depiction of Walt Whitman. I think he he says something like, "Of anyone that might be ruling in their grave about how I depicted them in this book, it's probably Walt Whitman because." there's so much about how I wrote him in this book that is not factually accurate about kind of his temperament or his belief system or anything like that. But yeah, I think that he's, he's definitely a necessary element of the book. I think to make the whole philosophy of the book kind of stick together. Absolutely. Yeah. And yes. And, and yeah, I mean, he is, you know, Joe continues to describe that, you know, his machine as, as an engine. Um, but Walt is the, is the fuel. It, Walt is Walt is what the the engine makes the engine go. I mean, his blood uh, plays a pretty important role in a character's appearance in the novel. And I mean, blood is a consistent element brought up throughout. I mean, very early on, it's uh, mentioned that um, all the blood should require a great work be done um, in reference to the blood spill during the Civil War. Um, and that's not the not the first time nor the last time that's said um, in the course of the novel. So there's, yeah, there's, there's a lot, there's a lot going on there. And I would, I mean, I think I have not read the children's hospital. I probably will assail it again. You must, you must. Um, but I also was mentioning to Lori, um, uh, the great night, um, Adrian's, I guess it's, I mean, I would say it's his most recent novel. He co-wrote one, I think, with Eli Horowitz in 2015 or something. But The Great uh, Night is a version of Midsummer Night's Dream. Um, and 
it opens with the probably the most heartbreaking 10 pages I've ever read. Um, so, yeah, this is... Uh, I, I wish we had more from Chris Adrian. I think uh, since I read this novel, I've been quite convinced that he's one of the more important writers around right now. So it'd be be wonderful if another another something came our way soon. Yes. If any friends of Chris Adrian are listening, please, please beg him to, <laughs> to write something else. Although we do, it's selfish because um, we do realize that he's helping a lot of very sick children in his pediatric career. Right. <laughs> we, 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 were even, we were even talking about this before we started recording and I was like, oh man, I wish he wrote more. But then, you know, he kind of, kind of shitty to demand that he write more and uh <laughs> let, let kids suffer but selfishly if he could do both that would be get give up give up everything else chris to give up like get help the kids and write the books and have no time otherwise that'd be that just fine by us <laughs> i don't even yeah including no time to sleep uh he's he's uh He's definitely an indispensable uh, human being. Um, but thank you, Tom, for uh, recommending this book to me. It was it was a sheer delight. And I really hope that for our listeners who don't know about Chris Adrian or have not read Job's Grief, that, that you'll run out to your independent bookstore and, and purchase a copy. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Lori. So we are going to be talking this segment about one of my very favorite Javier Moreas novels, Thus Bad Begins. And I don't know about you, but when I dug into this novel for the second time uh, to prepare for this conversation with you, I just, I feel like this novel perhaps even got better with the second read for me. I would very much agree with that. Uh, I was remarking before we started recording that, I mean, in the course of reading any author's work, you kind of not necessarily fall fully out of love, but you might not always jibe with it the same way. And I think this came out during a period when I wasn't as much jiving with what Marius was doing. Um, and I must have been insane during that time because reading <laughs> it, reading it now, um, or maybe it's just I'm that different of a person from when it came out, which is entirely possible. Um, it's just, it's a stunning, it's an incredibly well put together, intriguing, fascinating novel, in- incredibly successful. I, I, yeah, I, you'd previously stated that this, this is probably your favorite. Like we kind of put your face tomorrow to one side because it's such a capstone to, like, to a career in a way, even though it was in the middle, somewhere in the middle of the career. And, and I hadn't, I, I, you know, I was still, I might still side with a heart so white, but it might be a one A one B situation. This is this is a really, really um, remarkable uh, and very distinctly Marius uh, novel, the kind of book that I think only he could have produced. Yeah, I mean, it's you know, we have some of the same themes here, although none of the, um, well, I can't say none, but. We're a little bit further removed from the British Secret Service or like actual 
intelligence um, people. Um, this book is primarily about a filmmaker and his young apprentice or assistant, but there's still, you know, the same, <laughs> the same wonderful, complex, naughty themes that that Marius just loved to dive into. You know, betrayal and lies and secrets, and uh, you know, a little bit about I don't know reparative justice. I guess I I would say in a way, just trying to figure out whether crimes from the past need to be. Um, need to be brought to the fore and, and addressed and, and people made whole afterwards or whether it's just best to leave the past in the past. Yeah. Which is a really interesting, um, I mean, it's interesting for us to be discussing this one after Berta Isla and Tomas Nevinson, especially Tomas with, um, such a focus on the idea of justice and, uh, putting, putting accounts, right. Uh, that sort of thing. Um, those considerations that were that were running through it. And there's a lot of discussion in this novel from different characters of their opinions on those things. And it's situation uh, situated uh, set uh, five years after the death, death of Franco, um, when Spain is trying to sort itself out, figure out figure out what yeah, you know, what what from the past gets carried forward, what what is punished, what is ignored and largely, most things go unpunished, and that seems to be, at least as Maria's presents it, where most of the society is is falling. Whether they feel that people feel that way in their personal lives or not, which is again one of his recurring uh, considerations um, and that you just brought up the you know, the idea of what what does the what does the state worry about as far as justice goes, and what do people consider in in their own private um, lives? Yeah, I think that. Um... What I think is is most intriguing about this one, and it's it's a very explicit kind of uh, conundrum that is set out. We've got the filmmaker here, Eduardo, and the novel is very much about his life um, and the circle of people around him. But um, you've got this very public past crimes that he feels uncomfortable with. But then you've got the hypocrisy of Eduardo's personal life that he kind of feels like he he can't forgive, he he can't forget, he can't let let bygones be bygones and kind of turn a new leaf and just get on with his life. Um, so it's this juxtaposition of, with in one man's kind of moral universe. Um, of trying to reconcile whether or not to, I don't know, is defriend a word? Um, and this is well before social media, but whether whether or not to, to defriend someone because of what they may have been implicated in in the past for vis-a-vis um, Franco and, and Spain versus something very personal in his own marriage. And I just think that that's a really... It's it's a really fascinating exploration of that. Yeah. So maybe um, just a, a quick scene setting would, would be that would useful. be good. Right. So um, the narrator for the novel is uh, Juan de Ver. Once again, we get a very strange Spanish name that Maria's. So I mean, 
not, and not the only one in this novel. There are quite a few very odd um, <laughs> uh, foreign influence Spanish names, though. This one, they actually there's a, se- a very funny bit where they go into exactly how Juan's family came to be known as De Ver, um, and it's what you kind of might expect uh, someone in the past deciding to put on the airs and make the name sound a little bit more uh, refined by just changing up some of the letters and then someone else changing it a little bit more Um, back when, I mean, this is something that Marius likes to talk about in his other novels back when you can kind of take whichever name you wanted. Um, Things weren't quite as as set in stone. So Juan is 23, uh, just finished with university and through his family gets a job working for um, Eduardo Muriel, um, who, and I'm probably butchering that Spanish name, so be it, um, who is a film director uh, and is known for, he's known for making some very artistic, um, well-regarded films. He's also known for putting out less so, you know, kind of the the whole one for you, one for me sort of approach to filmmaking back before that was, I think, formalized by some jokes in uh, Kevin Smith movies as spoken by uh, Ben Affleck, which <laughs> is a, yeah, a, 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 probably a, a very strange illusion to bring up. But there might be a lot of strange uh, movie illusions brought up in this, in this episode. Um, and Juan very quickly becomes, you know, somewhat essential, um, is referred to both by Muriel and his wife Beatrice as something of an extension of uh, Muriel. Um, and at the opening of the novel, uh, Muriel is laying on his uh, back on the floor, which he often does when talking or thinking aloud uh, in Juan's presence. Um, and basically, yeah, brings up this idea that there there's something that was done in the past that he would like to know more about, that he would like to have verified, um, and that what was done was unforgivable in a way, Um, and specifically to do with uh, the treatment of women. Um, But he doesn't, he isn't, Muriel isn't totally sure that he wants to go down this route. and that is one of the threads that launch eventually launches Juan um, on a certain kind of investigation, um, always a certain level of subterfuge and peering into other people's lives in uh, all of Marius's novels. Um, and again, I guess said, I, sorry, go ahead. No, I, I guess I was just going to say that a part of part of the conundrum here is that Eduardo wants to know and then kind of doesn't want to know. And he feels, I think, some justified scruples here in terms of asking a, asking Juan to dig into this. Um, mm-hmm. Because he heard it, he heard it, you know, third hand. Um, it could be a rumor. It could be just some malicious slander against this, um, this friend of, of Eduardo and his family, Dr. Von Vetchen. Um, and so, you know, he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to make his, any investigation or inquiries, you know, obvious or known. Um, but he would be, he thinks very, um, well, more than disappointed. He keeps talking about this, this thing that, that Dr. Von Vetchen has been accused of as being um, indecency toward women or a woman. And, and 
so he thinks that if it's true, you know, it's horrible. But if it's not, he doesn't want he doesn't want any damage to come to the doctor based upon, you know, wondering about or thinking about or inquiring with others about whether or not this this rumor or this story is true. Right. And in a way, what he really specifically wants uh, is for for it to come from the horse's mouth, as it were. I mean, he wants Juan to – and this is set up a little bit. We're, we're kind of moving the timeline around a little bit in terms of when these things happen with the novel. This is probably like this official like final, like, it's Van Batchen I want you to look into, and this is how I want you to do it, probably happens about roughly a third of the way in after a lot of scene setting and um, uh, character description, um, which is – all delightful and we'll, we'll get back to. Um, but yeah, he wants, he wants Juan to get close enough to Van Vachin for Van Vachin to drop his guard and let him know, like say that this is the sort of thing that I, I, I once did or still do or what have you, um, which also ties back in a lot to notions or discussions of rumor. Um, that run throughout this novel. Um, and this is, a, you know, a particular consideration of Maria's is um, that you should be very careful what you say out loud, that once you say something out loud, it has a life of its own, you have no real control over it, um, and that it can go to places that you that you would not expect. Um, the specific instruction is to get close to Vinvachin. Part of the way to do this is that and maybe this is a quick moment to say Juan is 23. Uh, Muriel is what approaching 50 at this point in the novel. Um, this is all taking place in 1980. Um, and Vachin is approximately 10 years older than um, Muriel. Um, so he's, you know, 60, maybe just past, maybe just approaching 60. Then Vachin clearly likes to go out, likes to be about town. Um, and, as kind of fits with um, Muriel's concern, uh, clearly enjoys women and the presence of women and, you know, basically trying to, whether it's just the seduction, whether it's actually sex, he clearly wants that sort of interaction. Um, and so in Muriel's mind, it should be pretty easy for Juan to invite invite a six for a 23 year old to invite a 60 year old man out on the town uh in swinging madrid because madrid was swinging at this time this is as we said post franco um this is uh when the society is opening up everyone's expecting divorce to be made legal within the next however long um uh, there are some pains made to mention that AIDS had not arrived yet, or at least knowledge of it had not arrived yet. So, you know, there's a certain free flowing uh, sexual encounters taking place. But Eduardo was absolutely right, though, in terms of Juan's ability to get Von Vetchen to hang out with mm-hmm. with him and his 23 or 20 something year old friends, because it's kind of... Um, write up Van Vetchen's street, I guess, to kind of flirt with these much, much younger girls, women, and to try to, you know, I, I guess one could say make conquests out of them, more or less. I mean, it's interesting, right, in that Eduardo clearly, he's concerned when he receives this information about Van Vetchen that concerns him so much 
um, from a source that he trusts enough that he then dispatches his assistant to try and suss out this information. I mean, it read to me, and by the end of the novel, I think it's pretty clear, he knows it's true. Like I, I think that what he wants is confirmation. He wants the he wants to hear it, maybe secondhand through Juan, but he wants to hear it from Van Vachen that this is what took place, so he can take the final step to um, end the friendship, separate himself, whatever. But he wouldn't be asking Juan to do this if he didn't already have a pretty good idea that this was a likelihood, if not a certainty. Well, that's really interesting because a good part of the book is spent on this equivocation by Eduardo because once Juan starts getting close to Van Vetchen and Van Vetchen starts confiding in him, um, Eduardo on a number of occasions says, you know what, um, glad you're having fun with Van Vetchen. No need to report back to me. I don't even want to know anymore. You know, I don't even mm-hmm. want you to tell me um, whether or not this rumor is true. I'm I'm willing to just put it behind me and and move forward. So, yeah, the, the, the character of Eduardo is 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 a complicated character. I mean, he's described throughout by um, multiple characters as being incredibly morally upright. Um, as being like a good man, fundamentally, um, really interesting, engaging, all these things that make him sound, you know, like, frankly, like a, pr- a pretty good person, uh, a, a good, he's certainly regarded as a good artist, as a director, uh, worldly, all of these things. Um, he also has a tough time getting his movies made, which is sort of a, an interesting wrinkle to all that. Um but I, I think I think where he lands with Van Vetchen, um, which will be kind of a nice counterpoint to how he behaves in his personal life, is that I mean, I, I think in a way he's adopting a lot of what um Spanish society at the time was doing. Like knowing that there's a lot of crap in the past, that the people behave badly, um, even criminally, but justice as such you know putting all those you know writing all those accounts is not really possible at this point and he'd rather just continue forward i mean that that at least by the end is i mean certainly by the end is where he's at i don't think he's there when he first asks juan for this i think over the course of the novel the events that take place um convince him to be more in that position but yeah, I, I I get the feeling that in a way, I get the feeling that in a way that um, Eduardo probably kind of always knew on a certain level what his friend was and p- might still be, um, but sort of rolled with it until he heard more than just the rumors that flew around um, in the early days or or just before his time. Um, yeah, I mean, there's there's pain made to to um, talk about how long um, Van Vetchen has been in Eduardo's life, and you know, so this is someone that he's known for a long time. He certainly knows that Van Vetchen is kind of a lecherous dude. Um, that's why he has no. 
um, doubt that young Juan is going to be able to, <laughs> to lure Van Benchen out to, to drink and smoke and flirt with all of Juan's pretty young friends. Um, so, so yeah, he, and he also knows that Von Betchen has this, um, very, um, reputable reputation, not only as a pediatrician, but also as kind of a humanitarian during the Franco years that he, um, that he was, uh, administering healthcare to a lot of persona non gratas during the Franco regime and not, not asking them for payment or, um, you know, doing, doing work without being compensated just because it was the right thing to do, even though these people were political outcasts or worse, um, um, with respect to how the regime looked, looked at these people. He, it, there was, there's a sense that he's seen as someone that was actually brave during the Franco years in doing this. Absolutely. He has this sterling reputation um, of being willing to work, work with both sides. And as you said, support the folks who were being ground down and oppressed and, you know, had no real way to support themselves or certainly pay for health care. Um, Ben Vachin is a pediatrician, so it's even it's made even more so that he was taking care of children. And the children, of course, are innocent. They don't deserve the punishments their parents receive, even if their parents can't pay for the health care. So, yeah, he 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 gets this sense. I mean, obviously, he has to be on, you know, in good with the regime to have a medical practice, to be who he is in general. But he's in good enough and he comports himself in such a way that he's also viewed um, as someone who, yeah, takes care, takes care of children, takes care of whoever, whoever happens to need help. This is also the source of rumors about him and the rumors. And one of the, I mean, one of the clever things that I think Marius is doing um, in this novel, but by Juan being 23 and because of the age gaps and all the age gaps are taking place here, there's so much life that happens before you know, Juan's awareness. There's so much in the world that's taken place. And not, not only just in the context of this family that he joins, I mean, he, he ends up practically living um, with Eduardo's fa- Eduardo and Beatrice's family in their apartment, um, working there, taking care of things. Just, I mean, he becomes almost a body man as well as a secretary, you know, like always there. Um, but even for um, Eduardo, um, he's 10 years ish younger than, um, than Vinvachin. So whatever Vinvachin was getting up to as a young adult, he was still a child. He would, he might hear, maybe he overhears something at the dinner table or like late at night, but he wouldn't be as aware of some of the rumors that are flying around about Vinvachin at that time. Um, instead he'd be much more familiar with and comfortable with the, um, the legend that builds up around him as, as the pediatrician who takes care of any child who, who goes and helps the, the oppressed and the downtrodden, as well as having a, a strong, a strong relationship with the regime, a man who may have been, maybe he was a nationalist, but really he wasn't that strong of a nationalist. That just, it's like anyone. Some people fought for the Republicans. Some people fought for the nationalists. We're all just Spanish now sort of thing. 
Um, yeah, he comes across as being at least I think in Eduardo's memories, and 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 I think those memories carry carry into how Eduardo kind of still sees him or wants to see him in in the present day of the novel. Um, is he's kind of this kind, um, generous, bon vivant kind of guy. You know, right. he's he he mingles with all the artists in Madrid, and you know, everyone knows him. He knows everyone. Um, he's a debonair kind of guy that um, is always in a social setting and very um, and, and people kind of gravitate toward him. Um, yeah, it's um, it's just interesting, you know, this kind of ambivalence, I think, that Eduardo has toward him that, you know, he wants to continue to like him. He wants to continue to respect him, but there's, it's like a, it's like a pebble in his shoe, right? Like there's this, he's heard this, these stories and he, um, and he just can't shake it and just say, well, you know, I'm going to deal with this man fully based on what I factually know about him. There's, he's unsettled by what he's heard. And so, in one way, he wants Juan to uncover the truth. And in another, he kind of, he even tells Juan, you know, stop. I don't want you to tell me anymore. He, he, he almost, he almost at some point I feel like becomes a bit of an ostrich. He, you know, he, he kind of has second thoughts about what he's done in terms of setting Juan loose to, to figure out whether these, these stories, these rumors are true. I mean, he also, when he tells Juan to not, not tell him anything, he also doesn't, but he also doesn't tell Juan to stop investigating. He basically said like, if you want to find out for yourself, that's fine. I don't care. I don't want to hear it. Do not tell me anything about it. Um, which is, I think a really interesting um, tension there. Cause it's almost in a way setting it up that, well, I mean, if you told Juan not to do it anymore, then maybe never, nothing ever happens like more likely. Right. But by letting this possibility be there, you really think that if Juan finds out something like really true, like really, that really confirms your suspicions, he's not going to want to try and tell you, which is what happens. Juan, d- Juan does find out um, what, what, what Ben Vachin was doing and has been doing um, pretty much his entire adult life um, and tries to tell Eduardo and Eduardo will not hear him out. Um which leads to the second revelation um, that's at kind of the heart uh, or that's driving a lot of this narrative forward. But to kind of maybe put a little bit of a bow on the Venvach, or at least that aspect of the Venvachian piece, um, I mean, I think it's worth saying what it was he was doing. Um, Venvachian was more of a Francoist, a, a nationalist, than um, was maybe recognized um, by others. And was it became an intelligence officer uh, towards the end of the war and gathered lots of intelligence about people, um, and specifically the folks on the other side. And after the war was finished, she became a doctor and started to prey upon all these these oppressed people that he was helping, that he was uplifting by offering free medical care. The medical care wasn't free. He was demanding sex from the wives, the um, if the daughters were old enough from daughters, 
Um, and he wasn't the only one. There was another doctor, Aranz, who was doing the exact same thing. Um, and they would pass the wind back and forth. Um, and interestingly, uh, Dr. Aranz uh, <laughs> appeared in an earlier work of Marius's, uh, When I Was Mortal, the short story, which is the title of short story of that collection. Um, Dr. Aranz's activities are clearly laid out. Um, so if you've read that story, you might as I kind of did um, when I first read this and this time again, again remembered, you kind of clock maybe what Dunvachin, I mean, I don't think it's hard to clock what Dunvachin is at any point in this. Like you kind of get a clear sense of it. Um, and Juan is told this by a family friend who's just a couple years older than he is, who's a doctor. Um, and this also, I think there's a lot of discussion and a lot of play with the sort of inner intersecting social circles in Madrid at this time and the social milieu that um, Muriel operates in, that Van Dachin operates in, but also how those things are siloed a bit. It's some even open secret in the medical community what Van Dachin and Dr. Aranz are and what they've done, but it's really more a question of, are you going to talk about it? Who's willing to talk about it? And, and do you talk about it outside of your circle? And this is one of those moments where that, where that intersection took place, where it just so happened that this family friend um, who views himself and who Juan views as something of an older brother type um, had seen Juan out with Van Vatchen and was like, what the hell are you doing with this guy? This guy is scum. And then goes into it. Um, but yeah, that's what Van Vatchen is. And again, I don't know. I get the feeling that Eduardo knows. At the very least, the person who told Eduardo this, whom he trusted completely, was pretty clear about what Van Vatchen was doing. What Eduardo and what Eduardo wanted was confirmation from Van Vatchen, which he knew he was never going to get. So he really, in a way, he was setting this up for failure from the start. Because even if... Even if Juan came back to him with this information, it would still be another instance of hearsay. Maybe it's corroborating hearsay, but it's not confirmation from Vachin himself. And that's if Van Vachin and Van Vachin was still, you know, using the threats. So it wasn't just that he was offering healthcare in order to um, to sleep with. Uh, the women of a household. Um, he was also f making threats of, I know who you are. I know you wrote this editorial. And and, fr and and frankly, I don't even need to know who you are. I can just say that I heard you do such a thing. And we all know how that's more than enough for the police to do X, Y, and Z. So he's still doing that to this day. He clearly did it to at least one of um, Juan's friends um, that after a late night partying, he was driving people home. Um, she was the last one in the car and they had a sexual encounter. And it's pretty clear that he, he threatened her. Like he threatened to expose that she took drugs. He, he threatened something. Um, use his position as a 60-year-old well-respected doctor who is out on the town with these young kids to get sex of some kind out of it. He's scum. I think that that you make a really good point, though, because it's almost it's almost a a wink wink by Moraes, or maybe a wink wink by Eduardo Muriel. But um, so Eduardo knows, but he doesn't know. Mm -hmm. And in telling Juan, I don't want you to tell me anything else that you discover. I, I you know, just. Don't come to me anymore with these these evidences that that you're that you're finding out. 
Um, but it would be unfair for me to tell you that you can't continue because now you know, now I've, I've spurred your curiosity and, you know, and you can go and take this wherever you, you want. So it is kind of like, you know, there, there is, I think, a, a really strong level of um, faith, I guess you would say, that Eduardo has that that young 23-year-old Juan is is going to continue this mission and he's not going to be able to keep silent about it. He's going to, he's going to spill the beans um, and insist on spilling the beans to Eduardo, whether Eduardo is protesting too much or not, that he doesn't really want to know. Yeah. And there's a way in which this is also, maybe it's a little bit of Eduardo trying to teach something. I mean, that's, that's an overstatement, but there is an element of, we've already discussed how much rumor plays a role in this novel. I mean, rumor and rumor and words spoken aloud in all of Marius's work. Um, but especially in this one, it, it's lots of rumor. It's a lots of conversation about this person may have done this or been involved in that. Um, well, I think we'll, we'll circle to uh, how the internet actually shows up in this novel, which is a remarkable thing for a Marius, uh, a Marius book um, confirming some rumors that, that he'd, that the young one had been told. They call him young Devere, if I remember correctly. Um, constantly throughout as a kind of ironic way of setting, you know, not ironic, but like a way of setting up the fact that he's so much younger than everyone else he's interacting with, quite frankly. And, and also as a, a sort of a, you know, a little bit of a pet name, I think. Um, it was, it's certainly an overstatement to say that Muriel is trying to teach Juan anything, but for Muriel keeping quiet and holding in what you know um, matters. Like you don't, just say things unless there's a purpose to it, uh, unless there's a, a way of making it count for something, especially if something is damaging. You don't just throw things willy-nilly to the wind. Um, things that matter deeply. Um, and this is, I mean, so this is the second element of the novel that kind of drives things forward. We've talked about Eduardo Muriel as being, you know, clearly driven by a strong moral impulse to understand what his friend is until he decides he's not, doesn't want to know. Um, but in his personal life, he is absolutely repulsive in his treatment of his wife, constantly denigrating uh, her physical appearance, um, never a kind word, um, pointedly ignoring her to the absolute best of his ability when they're in private. And he got so used to Wam being there. And again, Wam being an extension of himself that the, the mask that is present when they have dinner parties or in public drops and, and Wan hears him, you know, say that she's as fat as the cask of Amontillado or just a pile of lard and, and just in general be incredibly cruel when no one other than Juan, frankly, or maybe, maybe the housekeeper Flavia, um, but when no one else is around. And those are two things that Juan clearly is having a hard time reconciling. You know, this strong moral impulse, this man whom, for whom he has quite a bit of respect as uh, a, an artist, as a, an interlocutor, as a well-read, um, very intelligent man uh, of you know of carriage, 
who's just a complete prick and more than a prick, just a monster to his wife, whom Juan is quite fond of and also thinks it's also like she's, I mean, not that, not that it, it undercuts it anymore, but she's very clearly described as being quite attractive. So why, so why that it, it, it's, it's really setting up like that there's something really critical occurred to cause Muriel to be, to be like this to a wife whom he clearly at some point loved and now just can't even stand this, the, the sight of to the point that it's distorting reality around him. Yeah. I think it's, it's pretty clear that, that young Juan has a bit of a crush on Beatrice mm-hmm. and, and really maybe kind of who wouldn't being in Juan's position um, by all accounts, except Eduardo's, I guess she's, um, She's an extremely attractive woman. There's, there, there's, you know, descriptions of her as being voluptuous, but she's, but she's very pretty. Um, and perhaps most attractive. And for me, um, and I'm sure most readers reading this, it somewhat really heartbreaking is her just seemingly unwavering love and devotion to Eduardo, no matter how nasty he is to her. And there is some discussions that are set forth in the novel between she and her friend Gloria. And Gloria is kind of talking about, you know, God, why don't you, why don't you divorce um, this guy? Because divorce is going to be legal in Spain soon. They're, they're about ready to pass some laws. And, you know, he treats you so bad. Just, just, you know, just leave him. And she says, well, you know, I know that underneath this monster that my husband has become, at least his in his relationship toward me, is still the man that I love and the only man that I can ever love. So if I leave him, I'm just going to be further away from that kernel of the person that I fell in love with. And while it seems quite hopeless... As long as I stay with him, there's there's some even minuscule hair's breadth chance that he will once again become the person that that I knew, that I fell in love with, and who fell in love with me. And it's really very poignantly, I think, set out by Marais in the book. And um, yeah, it's just it's just really heartbreaking. Yeah, he re- he returns to that theme a number of times, and it's it's made very clear by Juan's um, observations of them that she is holding on to hope that that uh, is the like you said the the hope of her husband returning his returning to his love for her um, that keeps her that keeps her there that keeps her trying. Uh, there's a scene early-ish on where. Uh, Juan has begun to sleep at the apartment um, and he observes uh, late at night and uh, Eduardo and Beatrice are sleeping in separate rooms, as you might expect, given the um, relationship we just laid out. Um, And Juan observes uh, Beatrice pacing, you know, late at night in the dark in just a very thin nightgown um, in front of Eduardo's door and eventually knocking on it. Um, And this is sort of, this is one of the main points of, information 
for for Juan about their relationship. Um, as there's a more than a bit of an ex- I mean explosive um, from Eduardo's end, where he's pretty much just like, "Why don't you stop this?" To Beatrice, I will never go back with you. I will, I will never love you again. Um, but also some almost moments of tenderness between the two of them, indicating that there was something there before. Um, and a firm rejection by Eduardo of Beatrice again, but the suggestion again of hope that there was a moment of tenderness, that maybe he, that maybe that possibility is still there, um, whatever it was that caused this, this rupture. Um, but Beatrice is a, a fundamentally unhappy person um, who wouldn't be when, when living under those circumstances. And about two thirds of the way through the novel, um, right before um, our, our good friend Peter Wheeler makes makes an appearance, of course, uh, he, of course, the Oxford Don, who's been who's in Madrid and has been invited over for a dinner party um, with any number of um, film types, um, which we will definitely get to because. Film plays such a huge role in this novel, not just because of Muriel's profession. This dinner party is supposed to take place, um, but it doesn't because uh, Beatrice uh, checks herself into a hotel and cuts her wrists and attempts suicide. At this point, uh, Juan is not only attempting to spy on Von Vacten, but is taken to following Beatrice around a bit. Um, Her unhappiness is palpable. Um, He's kind of curious as to what she's getting up to. Um, And he does observe her uh, go to a very random building um, and have sex with Van Vacten. Uh, and it seems almost mechanical in a way. Um, but this kind of keeps him following her around. And the night of the party, um, Beatrice leaves the apartment for a moment. He pops out. He sees her check into a hotel. And then when the, par- when the party is about to start and she's not there yet, and he mentions this, a look of, I wouldn't say it's horror, but, you know, absolute moral concern goes across Eduardo's face and Eduardo Van Vacten and um, Juan take off running uh, for the hotel to find her. Van Vacten is able to stabilize her and save her. And it comes out that this is her third uh, suicide attempt. Um, It's more or less stated that at some point she will be successful, um, that she, she likely will succeed in killing herself because of her, unmooring and depression from uh, the relationship and the life, the relationship with her husband and the life that she is living. This almost, I don't know, almost feels like an exile within her, within her own home. Um, yeah. I think it's, there's, there's some interesting scenes towards the, in the last third or last quarter of the book when um, Juan just, you know, confronts Eduardo and says, listen, you know, I've witnessed and overheard some horrible things in this house. And, and I think I deserve an explanation as to why you are so beastly and horrible to your wife. And, um, at one point Juan says, I, and I really don't understand it because when we raced to that hotel, and we saved her life um, when she slit her wrists. You were you were very visibly upset. You know, you were you were you were very um, 
concerned about her and your love for her kind of shown through. And Eduardo makes some paraphrasing here, but some kind of comment like, oh, well, I really no longer care how Beatrice lives, but I very much care about how she dies because that affects me and that affects our children. And, um, and yeah, she probably will succeed in committing suicide one day, but, um, but I need to try to, to make that not be the case because, you know, because that will, that will affect me in, in some way that this, just this horrible living situation doesn't. It's a very, I, I found it to be kind of uh, a, a weird, a weird kind of comment to make. And there's, a, there is a real almost clinical edge to um, Eduardo. I mean, he, he can make these pronouncements and, and statements that almost seem bloodless and not, not even just cruelty, just they, they seem, and not even just like hyperlogical, they, they just somehow seem so divorced from kind of almost a standard emotional resonance that it, it, they feel very strange. And that's, that's one of them, but that was also tied into his, his personal sense of justice. Um, and it also is worth pointing out that Van Vactin's help in saving um, Beatrice's life and his help throughout their lives, um, bringing all their children into the world, uh, taking care. I mean, they had a first child who uh, died very suddenly at two. Um, they think of a menicagalactica, like one of those awful to pronounce. Um, Brain infection. Brain infection. Thank you. That makes it so much easier. Um, who died at two years old with a brain infection very suddenly, um, which incidentally is what they um, what they believe that Marius's um, eldest sibling died of at pretty much the exact same age. Um, that popped up in Dark Back of Time. Also, the picture in the apartment of Beatrice holding um, Javier, the two-year-old, uh, looks almost at least in my mind, it looks almost exactly like uh, the description or the, or the cover images of most of the editions of Dark Back of Time with uh, the mother or someone, uh, Knight in the case of the New Directions edition, uh, holding a young child looking over their shoulder, looking back over the shoulder. But I mean, that's as, as has been well established, Marius loves to just blend so many different things in, um, not even Easter egging. I just think it's how his brain worked. Um, but because of Van Vactin's assistance, and I think the reminder and the renewal of that assistance, that's why Eduardo doesn't want to know anymore. He's decided that, you know what, whatever the hell the man was, whatever. Like I, I, I know who he is in my life, and I am not willing to cross someone else off the list. Um, and one trying to tell Eduardo what Van Vactin is, uh, was and is, um, and uh, Eduardo's refusal to listen is what then directly leads to Juan demanding information, demanding to know why uh, Eduardo is as cruel to uh, Beatrice as he is. Um, and so should we talk about why Eduardo has crossed Beatrice off the list? Before we do that, let's talk about the movies for just a second, because because I, I think I think I think talking about what happens with Beatrice is going to kind of propel us to the conclusion of the conversation, or at least is going to be emotionally exhausting. So I would, I would uh, 
let's talk about the movies. So, um, as discussed, Muro is a director. Uh, he has some fame uh, within Spain. Um, there is a really fun uh, discussion that Marius does. Um, and this is one of the reasons, this is a reason why I think this novel is so successful, especially as compared to uh, Berta and Tomas, is that it just has the asides and the one-liners and the thought processes that are so much a trademark, I feel, of Marius's, especially his earlier work. Um, and it's interwoven here in a much more expansive plot with a much larger cast of characters. Maybe not your face tomorrow, but certainly of um, Tomorrow on the Battle or um, A Heart So White. Um, but they're here in a way that they weren't in uh, Tomas and, and a little bit in Berta, but not quite as much. And they're just fun. They're just fun to listen to. Um, so he has a little bit of a thing about how in Spain, it's, you know, last name, first names versus last names. When you become known by your first name, it's because you've penetrated the culture in a certain way. But last names might actually connote a certain level of respect. But Muriel is, in, Muriel is sort of in the last name category, but, but not quite. Um, and he's fading. His, his best, he's best known for his work from five or six years ago. And it really matters, like, when, you know, proximity matters. It's also interesting that, like, his best work was taking place during the Franco regime and now Spain is different and it's harder for him to get his work made or, or to be as well respected. But um, as a working director, he's also done some not so great um, work and he's, um, and I'm, oh man, I'm, can you remember off the top of your head, the full name of the producer that he works with a lot? Uh, Towers is the last name, but yeah. the full name is just, remarkable i don't remember it but yeah i know the character you're talking about uh harry allen towers um harry allen towers was a british uh film producer um the man lived a long time um he made a lot of public domain schlock as it were um and this is a real person uh who also interacted with another real person, the film director Jesus Franco, who is Javier Marias's uncle, and for whom, and for whom Marias worked, and Jesus Franco is also a character in this novel. Um, almost set up something as Muriel's foil when, when the film that um, Eduardo is working on when Beatrice attempts suicide. When he was able to return to it, um, Towers, Towers is funding it and eventually fires him from it and is going to bring in Jesus Franco to finish it off. Um, Jesus Franco, who at the time is in the middle of working on four other films, somehow produced. Uh, IMDb practically comes up in this novel um, where Juan, in, Juan writing from the future says a quick uh, internet search indicates that in the 1980 to 81, um, Jesus Franco, also known as Jess Frank, um, had 13 film, uh, credits to, to his name or something, or something along those lines. And it's, I mean, that's, that part's fun. And that part's really just sort of like this blending of, um, of real people um, into into his narratives in a lot of interesting and, and different ways that I feel like he was doing that Maurice was doing more in his later work than he certainly did in, in the earlier. Um, this is all this is all fun. I wanted to quickly point out a couple of the books that uh, a couple of the movies that um, uh, 
that uh, Towers is involved with, um, specifically the fact that Towers is also the producer of the Christopher Lee Count Dracula, which as as a piece of just sort of, I don't know, pop culture ephemera is remarkable. Oh, also Jack Palance. Yeah, that Jack Palance happened to be uh, a good friend of Eduardo Muriel's and appears a couple times in the novel as hanging out the house, coming by. Um, it's... It's just wild how he's blending in all these characters, all these real people and turning them into characters. Last of whom is uh, Herbert Lom. Now, Herbert Lom is a Czech British actor. Uh, he also was in uh, Christopher Lee, Count Dracula. He also played uh, in Chief Inspector Dreyfus, um, Inspector Clouseau's immediate superior in the Pink Panther movies. Um, he also lived for an incredibly long time. Towers died in 2009 at the age of 88, and Lom died in 2012 at the age of 95. All the people that, that he's bringing in, all the associations are just so wild. Um, and Lom is a character who, uh, in the novel, who tells Muriel and uh, Lon about some of Towers' checkered past. Um, Towers, for a long time, could not enter the United States, uh, otherwise he'd be arrested because he uh, took flight when he was charged for running a vice ring or was about to be charged for a vice ring at the UN. He also was perhaps the uh, pimp or at the very least the procurer for a woman who was um, sleeping with JFK, with Bobby Kennedy, um, just down the list. So Lum's telling this story to kind of give some flavor to Towers, which also gives some flavor to who Muriel is willing to put up with or not put up with. But in the way that there would be these sort of weird asides or these characters that would sort of go into their life story and it felt very, as we discussed, bogged down in Tomas Nevinson, this was just exuberant. It was funny. It fed the narrative in really interesting ways. It pushed things so much further forward. And it also had such, there are so many like recurrences and recursions through this novel from the uh, one as an extension of, of Muriel to uh, one of the parties that Towers was throwing in New York that uh, JFK was at when he first met this woman um, who I feel very poorly that her name is escaping me was ended because uh, another actor had brought his girlfriend with who had slashed her wrists. And Muriel made uh, makes a comment about how, oh, that's just a, uh, that's a thing women will do, you know, and they usually don't cut it just right. And about 30 to 40 pages later, not even, uh, his wife does the exact same thing. Um, it's just such a tightly structured novel. I mean, it's really, it's really impressive on that level too. Um, yeah, the cameo the cameos are really fun. Um, and and we were talking before we started recording, Tom, about I think I think we both feel like this book has a momentum to it. Um, that as you as you stated, that Tomas Nevinson doesn't quite um, quite get to the same. I think ideal level, nor does, nor does Berta Isla. They feel a little bit sloggy in places where this just kind of, 
this just kind of clips along. I mean, it's a big book. It's almost 500 pages, but you really don't, um, you really don't feel it. It's just, um, it, it, it's got a good pacing. Yeah, there, there is, it doesn't feel like there's very much wasted space here. It, it all, it all ties together. It all moves, moves you towards the, the various beats that are necessary. Each part feeds and informs um, the other one. Um, it's yeah. It's just, it's just, a, it's just a really well-constructed novel. And I think, yeah, I, I think it is different from some of his earlier work. Again, just that it, it does have the same level, some of the same levels of interiority and thought bleeding into thought leading to the next statement or what have you, but with a much larger plot or larger plot's the wrong way of putting it. Um, expansive uh maybe of a plot or i don't know i think he's i think he's telescoping more um in this novel he's going from the sort of macro um national level into the interpersonal into the deeply personal into the uh into a a real interiority and i don't i don't know that he always did that in the other ones they usually kind of they hung around a specific person in a specific person's head and their choices and their actions but he didn't play out the ramifications in quite the same way. Um, yeah. So it just, just makes it, makes it a bit different that way. Um, and of course there's the inevitable Shakespeare that shows up throughout the novel. Um, and then I guess this is me. I really loved this novel. Um, Full disclosure, our original plan was to talk about the infatuations and thus bad begins for this bit. And um, we made an audible and decided that there was no way we could do anything but talk about thus bad begins. That thus that bad begins deserves all the time in the world it can get. Um, so this is maybe me like pr- postponing the the final denouement. One of the well, not quite the final, but one of the final denouements of, of the novel. Um, well, the there, the title. Um... The the title is interesting and referenced in different parts of the novel. Uh, Thus, bad begins, and I think the the piece that the Shakespearean quote is when bad begins, but worse remains behind. And this is brought up in the context about halfway through the novel when um, when Eduardo is is equivocating about whether or not. Um, whether or not he really wants to know, um, about, about, um, Van Vetchen and, and, and whether or not, uh, you know, he, he wants Juan to tell him whatever Juan is discovering, because there's this idea that maybe it's just, maybe, maybe it's just better not to know, or maybe it's, you should give up trying to know what you really shouldn't know. Um, so it's a, it, this is a, I feel like this is a recurring theme throughout Moraes as well. The, the kind of idea that are you better to have not ever known than, than to someday, you know, discover something that is going to ultimately make you more unhappy. Right. And also what, what is the responsibility of the person that makes it known in, in the first place? Um, and that, that ultimately is, um, Eduardo's break 
with uh with Beatrice um is that she does something but then she tells him about it and that is what he can't forgive I mean what she did he found abhorrent but he would been happier not to have known and frankly that's what he's choosing yeah exactly what he's choosing to then that chin he probably he does know he doesn't have confirmation but he doesn't really want confirmation he doesn't want to hear it for sure because then he has to make another then he has to do the next thing and the next thing that comes after that um and it comes specifically from the quote the title comes specifically from um hamlet and it's right after hamlet um kills polonius um basically saying like well this is just this is the first thing and, and and more more is yet to come because of it and so do you really want to kick it off do you really want to to get that get that thing moving um or not um i just briefly wanted to mention that um Juan's last name devere uh gets brought up like and the fact that it's addressed that it's such an unusual spanish name um is brought up by one of the characters in the novel who's probably one of the I don't know, stranger but most fun side characters Marius has ever introduced. Um, Professor Rico, who's this loud, loud mouth, borderline crude, also sort of a lech, but not to the same degree as um, Van Vatchen, um, academic, um, a specialist on all things Renaissance. Uh, his goal in life is to be part of the Spanish uh, Royal Society, the Real Academia, which Marius actually was a part of up till his death. Um, fun thing about them, about that grouping, is that uh, you're assigned a seat uh, um, based on the alphabet. So, like, it can only have so many people in it. Um, and so, Marius was the R seat, I believe, um, which. I don't know. This is random, but um, but Professor Rico and, and and this is in Rico attempting to uh, impress and steal the girl that Juan is dating at the time goes into this whole thing about where did your name come from, and it's interesting because Devere um, actually also is has some French roots, but it also has some English roots, and he brings up Edward Devere, who is one of the um, supposed real Shakespeare's. So Marius, like who constantly is quoting Shakespeare, brings up one of the frankly weaker theories about Shakespeare as not as having not been Shakespeare. And not only that, but later in the novel, um, Juan like thinks about the fact that, you know, actually Eduardo has the first name of the fake Shakespeare and I have the last name. It's, and it just occurred to me like, well, shit, maybe that's how Marius came up with their, their names as he just... Read, decided to split up Edward, Edward de Vere, minimum Eduardo Muriel and Juan de Vere. I mean, probably stranger things have happened in how he's created characters, but yeah. So that was just one more fun little digression, or I hope it was fun. I enjoyed it. It but. was fun. It was fun. It is always interesting. I mean, you know, you read, you read the story and, you know, of course the plots are fun and the, the consciousness of the characters are are complex and nuanced, but then there's all of these there's just all of these things sprinkled through that you know you can read you can read this the, the novel you know very enjoyably um, and not really 
dwell on any of those little little gemstones that are scattered about but and that's probably how i mostly read it but you bring up some really some really kind of interesting ties tom that um that make it just it's just fun to think about um how his mind must have worked and i can almost see him i mean i've never been in the same room with him like you have but like i, I just imagine someone like sitting at their desk and like starting to like rub their hands together and when they get you know when he gets this idea about like ah that's what i'm gonna name this character or this is who i'm going to have Ed, eduardo muriel star in his next film you know just kind of these fun things yeah i i, I i've always kind of thought that he in writing he he must have at moments have just gotten like either either a, a, a small little smile that those who knew him were probably like, ah, what did he do this time? Or he might have I don't know, I think he could have been a giggler. I think he could have get, get, t- given out given out a little bit of a giggle when, when he when he hit something, uh, hit upon something that he really, really thought was funny, which maybe no one else picks up on, but it just delights him no end. Um All right, Beatrice. Beatrice. Yeah, Beatrice. Um, Okay, so Juan basically leverages uh, leverages what he knows, um, what he doesn't know, and what Eduardo doesn't want to know about Venvachin to get some answers as it pertains to Venvachin about about Eduardo and um, Beatriz's uh, relationship. And what basically comes out, and this is a very like it, I mean, of course, it, it's a winding digression, and Juan asks questions at moments that really tick off Eduardo and almost derail the whole conversation. But um, what pretty much comes out is that um, Beatrice and Eduardo um, were were in love. Um, he goes, Eduardo goes to some pains to say there wasn't necessarily passion there, but there was there was love, um, and. They're engaged to be married. Uh, she has to go to America. Uh, she, Beatrice mostly grew up in the States for quite a while. Um, her father took her as a baby. Um, supposedly her mother was dead, but um, it later comes out that she was not. Um, uh, and fled uh, when the war ended, and um, or just after. Um, went to Mexico and then ended up uh, in Wellesley um, and knew, working in New England colleges as a translator and professor. And so Beatrice mostly grew up in the States and uh, somewhat in, and then spent summers um, often in Boston and back in um, Spain. She meets Eduardo. She falls for him almost immediately. Eduardo eventually comes around. Uh, they're engaged to be married, but she has to go back to take care of her father who has fallen incredibly ill. Um, and while she's gone, it's kind of an indeterminate stay. Uh, he meets someone else and he falls deeply, passionately in love. And he feels passion. He feels that this is the person that he is supposed to be with. Um, and he attempts, you know, basically to break things off. Um, he sends a, a letter, a telegram to her, or no, a letter to her, sends it express. He then, within a couple of days, receives a telegram from her saying that her father is dead and she's coming home. He telegrams her to, you know, that there's an urgent letter coming. And then she telegrams that she, when she's going to be at the airport. That letter was him breaking it off. But because she's coming back to Spain, because she's coming, and the only thing that's bringing her back to Spain is him. He feels, and they were already engaged, he feels duty-bound, honor-bound, that he has to go through the marriage. Um, and so he ends things with the love of his life. 
um, which is exactly how he described her earlier in the novel. He and Beatrice marry. They have children. They're together for 12 years. It's a good, it's the, it is a loving marriage. They are in love, but Eduardo says there is no passion. And then in an argument, I think specifically, if I'm remembering correctly, because of uh, an actress he brought around that she, you know, she wasn't happy about how he behaved around her, that sort of thing. She walks over to uh, a, a bookshelf, pulls down a book, and pulls out the letter he sent her. Still in the envelope, opened. She'd read it. She knew what he was doing. She sent the telegram, and she rushed her way back to Spain to lock him up. And that was the breach. Yeah. The, the presumption is that she never received the letter because – he meets her at the airport um, uh, pursuant to the instructions in her telegram. And, um, you know, she never, she never mentions um, anything about a letter. And in fact, he asked her, did you receive the letter? And she says, no, I can't, I don't know what must have happened. Um, and he knows there's a problem when, she, when he gets the telegram saying, you know, I arrived tomorrow morning at 7 a.m. Please meet me at the airport because she says, I, she closes with, I love you more than ever. So obviously not, not what someone would, would telegram after they wrote, after they read a letter breaking off an engagement. Um, but she's just been pretty much bluffing him for 12 years about the fact that uh, she, she was, unaware that he had fallen in love with someone else and, and intended not to ever marry her. Um, and that I guess to Eduardo is, is just like an, you know, an unacceptable betrayal and has, has kind of, um, changed his whole way of seeing and reacting with his wife for, for years afterwards. When when he is telling Juan sort of his thought process as to why Eduardo felt that would be wrong for him to marry Beatrice being passionately in love with this other woman. But when Beatrice is returning with her her father dead, or only, you know, her life as it were in the in the US over and returning to Spain, where she, you know, the only thing she had was was Eduardo, that Again, duty bound, honor bound, but he also had this moment where he talks about, you know, one does one's best not to do harm to others. Against everything, within the context of him being a moral and good man, he also has clearly this sense of propriety. And so, like, she did harm to him, but then she did further harm. And this is the point he made in their nighttime argument, really more him just shouting at her, that she did him wrong once and she did him even more wrong the second time. And the second time being when she didn't, when she couldn't keep it to her, when she, it wasn't even that she couldn't keep it to herself. She said it and she didn't think it would cause this rupture. She was just trying to like kind of tit for tat him, not realizing that in his estimation, as soon as he gets his information, um, she ended his life. She ruined his life. He could have been with the, you know, love of his life. And instead he's been with her whom he loves, but he does not love the same way. And it's, it's the, 
it's not just what she did. It's the fact that she, that she threw it in his face, that she brought it up, that she didn't keep it to herself. Again, saying it aloud, saying it to him, not just keeping it to herself was in some ways an even greater breach than simply uh, misleading him all those years ago. Um, I, I, I can't help but think there's something very extraordinary about the stamina of both of these characters, Beatrice and, and Eduardo, to keep living in this situation and being consistent in the way that they live in this situation. Beatrice, like, you know, just um, always insisting to Eduardo um, how much she loves him and you know, that, you know, and living through this abusive um, relationship uh, day after day. And Eduardo in just kind of, um, I don't want to say that he, he is holding a grudge, but that would make it sound like I think almost like it's not justified because she did force him basically to live a lie um, until he found out about her lie. Um uh, but yeah, they just keep, and you know, they do have three kids, but they just keep staying together, living together day after day, year after year in this really, what would seem to be an extremely untenable situation. I mean, I would, I would find either side unbearable. Like, I don't, I don't know how, I, I, I do not honestly know how folks and there are folks who do function within these kinds of relationships or at least like maintain them. And I just don't, I, I personally would not be able to uh, accomplish either side, either holding a grudge the way and grudges again, you're right. Not the right word, both being as angry and as anger as his state of being uh, for Eduardo um, setting aside the cruelty, just feeling that sort of, emotion at you know at almost at any conscious moment with his wife would be just with his partner is just i don't know how, and yeah endurance is endurance and stamina are, are just the right ways to put it and then for beatrice to continue to hold on to that hope i mean it's especially sad because one must think then that the passion he didn't feel for her she felt for him this he is the love of her life and that's why he She's just as unwilling to let go of her love as he is of his anger and hate for pretty much the exact same reason. And that's really tragic in its way. Yeah. Um, yeah. He just has this enduring resentfulness toward her and she has this, um, and I, I don't know that it's, it's fueled by guilt on her part for this, this betrayal um, that she committed against him. It, it, I, I think you're right. Um, They talk about the fact that she was quite a bit younger when she first met Eduardo. She was an adolescent, I think maybe 13 and he was like 20 or 21. So um, she kind of had that, you know, that girlish crush on him. And then it just kind of like grew into this, into this steadfast love. And, I guess you could, it's not right to say that, um, it was a, it was a correct 
motivation, her her undying love for him to lie and betray him like she did, but maybe it explains why she, you know, she did what what she did because she couldn't imagine life without him. Yeah. Like I said, that part's a little bit emotionally draining um, and rough. The relationship with the ch- their children throughout um, is made clear that Eduardo, is in a, when he's there, is a good father, um, pays attention to his children. Um, the children certainly you know, seem to have their own lives or at school constantly. There are some pains made to say that they all are clones of Beatrice, both girls and the boy that there's almost no, that Muriel almost doesn't, doesn't factor into, into what they look like, um, which is kind of played with a little bit throughout the novel, especially when it comes, you know, when it comes out what Van Vetchen and Arans were doing that perhaps they also left behind some children um, through their, their nighttime predations on um, vulnerable families. Um, well, <laughs> one's, I forget how he, I mean, it's not, he's not, he uses the thus bad begins as a way of framing it, but his, uh, maybe his first sin and then the secondary one. You already mentioned the fact that Juan has definitely has a crush on Beatrice. Um, we've also already established that Beatrice was having physical um, affairs, not remotely emotional. Um, and with Van Vatchen and probably also with Aran's. At one point after her suicide, when um, Muriel goes to Barcelona to try and pick up the pieces of the film that he had to put on hold before he's fired, um, Muriel asks uh, Juan to keep a clo- to stay at the house, at, you know, always sleep there and try and keep an eye on Beatrice. And one evening during this, um, Beatrice is up late. Juan encounters her, and uh, they have sex. And Juan, I mean, he kind of at moments considers whether or not he's taking advantage of a woman who is in extremis, who had just attempted suicide, who's in not the right mental state. He decides in some ways that it's acceptable, that this is just, it's a moment in time. It doesn't need to be like, you know, it doesn't need to be weighed against all other moments in time in the future. Um some self-justifications, a lot of things that are in keeping with a lot of the other considerations of, of the novel. And obviously he does not tell Eduardo this. But at one point, at one point while they, when they are first starting to have sex, he hears footsteps and he thinks that maybe when the kids are up. And the door is closed, but it is cracked. But he doesn't think anyone could see in. And either way, he's going to continue to have sex with Beatrice. A few weeks later, he ha- he finds out about Van Vachin. He, tr- he tries to tell Eduardo. Eduardo then tells him about Beatrice's betrayal. Um, at this point, he was uh, Juan is already moving on um, and no long- planning to no longer work for um, Eduardo. Um, and within the next year, um, Beatrice, who liked to borrow Eduardo's um, motorcycle on Sundays and go to the racetracks, um, which is just a- earlier in the novel that made for a really delightful sort of like additional character trait um, dies in a motorcycle accident. Uh, that's what they tell the children. She runs into a tree. Um, pretty much all the adults assume that sh- this was her final uh, and successful attempt at suicide. Within a year of that, um, Eduardo remarries. So just to quickly say, 
one is sex with Beatrice. This is a betrayal. Even if it doesn't mean anything, and even if Beatrice never acknowledges it um, after the fact, and there's really no change in the relationship. I mean, he did have sex with his employer's wife, with this woman who is a, in some ways not just an employer, but a friend of his. Like, it's, it's all very complicated. It's all very messy. And he feels any number of ways about it. Eduardo remarries, um, dies five years later, and at and when he at this point, Juan is kept in touch with uh, per, the professor, Professor Rico, who we talked about earlier, who went into the whole Shakespeare bit, who lets him know when the uh, funeral is. And at the funeral, Susanna, the oldest child, is scanning the crowd and sees Juan and runs over and takes his hand and brings him up to stand with the family. And he stands with the family, and the chapter ends. And the very next chapter begins that he and Susanna have been married ever since that they have now been married. He, they've been married as long as they are, or, or, or as well, what was the phrasing? They've been married as long at that point as uh, Beatrice lived or something along those lines um, that they've been pretty much out. They've certainly outstripped the length of time that um, Beatrice and Eduardo were married. Beatrice is now, or some, the timing is something like that. Beatrice is, uh, Susanna is now Beatrice's age and is looking even more like her mother and is looking like her mother at the time when Juan slept with her. And there are moments where he wonders whether or not Susanna was the one who saw them, who saw Juan having sex with her mother. And it's not, and they both look away from each other and there's this, the, the novel basically ends with them both saying a repetition of a phrase that, that continues throughout no words, no, no kisses, no words. We don't say anything about this. And I mean, Lori, damn, like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, what a, it just, it's such, it's such a, a complete, novel yeah yeah i mean i think that's i think that's a really perfect way of uh, of summing it up um it, it is absolutely there there are no there are no loose threads there are threads everywhere there are so many lives you could follow and so many interactions you could you could continue onwards with and and it's woven into his other works with the appearance of certain characters and whatnot but it is it is such a tightly, like tightly, beautifully written, woven tale. It's really just remarkable as hell. And yeah, I I don't know what I was thinking when I read it um, however long ago, when probably when it first came out. But this is, yeah, this is absolutely one of his fine, by far one of Maria's finest works. Um, and I think, in the later part of his career, probably, probably, almost certainly, yeah, certainly his best work post, um, post your face tomorrow, I would say. Everyone, go out there, buy a copy of Thus Bad Begins. It's, it's totally worth your time. So entertaining, so smart, so complex, and um, yeah, just read it. To read it is to believe it. Absolutely. Um, and this is, I think we've spoken about like recommending Marius and where people should start or shouldn't start. Um, 
I, I don't know. I think you can start with this one. I obviously think you can because it, it this does not confirm for you that you're reading one of the the great writers, then nothing will. So you may start with this one and just be absolutely thunderstruck by it, I would say. Totally agree. Thanks for a good discussion, Tom. Thanks, Laurie.